Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Jennifer McCarran, the CEO of Thunderbird Entertainment Group. Thunderbird is a $220 million Canadian dollar market cap company listed on the TSXV in Canada. The company develops, produces, and distributes film and TV programs for customers such as Hulu, Disney, and Netflix. Jennifer started off as the head of production of Atomic Cartoons, Thunderbird's animation division, and became CEO in 2018. Since Jennifer joined the company in 2011, The content world has changed dramatically, mainly due to the proliferation of streaming services. Given the dynamic nature of the content production industry, I was curious to hear from Jennifer about how the company is positioned to continue to provide content to the large streaming companies, her thoughts on the high valuations other smaller studios have been selling for recently, what the company plans to do with the cash it generates, the distinct elements of the Thunderbird culture, and the factors that have allowed for the stock to perform so well over the last few years. For full disclosure, Coast Street is not a Thunderbird shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Thunderbird Entertainment Group CEO, Jennifer McCarran. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. I think a great place to start would be when you took over as CEO in 2018. Prior to that, you had been president and CEO of Atomic Cartoons since 2016. I would love to hear about any aspects of the Thunderbird strategy you thought needed to change at that time and what components you thought were right on target. Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Ben, and thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, When I took over as CEO of Thunderbird in 2018, I think a a pivotal moment was um, I had dreams uh, along with the teams of being a major global studio. And in order to become a major global studio, I knew we needed a U.S. presence, um, sort of boots on ground in Los Angeles. So uh, we went out, um, hired the best possible people we could find. And that um, was and has been an absolute game changer for us. We have Matthew Berkowitz, who's now president of Thunderbird and chief creative officer based in L.A., Richard Goldsmith, who runs our consumer products and distribution division. And uh, with the boots on ground in Los Angeles, we were able to pivot from being more of a service company to more of a full-scale IP company. Um, So that's been um, really one of the biggest game changers. What didn't need to change, uh, I think, was, um, you know, the focus on people and culture. Uh, The founders who uh, sort of found me within the organization, Tim Gamble and Kim White, and said, okay, we want you to be the CEO and Yvonne Fitzon um, always supported the notion of putting people ahead of the bottom line. And that that was the key to success. And that really echoed my values system. Um, so it was easy to double down on that, which I do, you know, give the teams full credit for the success we've had today and the growth. And that's uh, right from the beginning, a focus on um, people first. And as you took the role, my guess is you had discussions with the board about what your mandate was going to be. You know, was was the mandate to build out the presence in, in LA? Is that one of the things? And then I'm interested in like how that if, if over the last three or four years that that mandate has changed at all, or what elements have been added to it. Yeah, the mandate from the board was just to grow <laughs> and to honor the public market as well as the operational market. Uh, I had just watched the Canadian system changing over the years. 
and knew that in order to be most effective, even though I would travel down to Los Angeles kind of once a month, every six weeks, it was really different than having a, a, a true presence there. And, um, you know, having those lunches and walks and, you know, just being able to um, have a, you know, a sales team, a creative team uh, would be a game changer for us. And it certainly proved to be. So the, the mandate I received as CEO was just grow the company, <laughs> uh, you know, be it through M&A or organically. Um, of course, I've always leaned towards an organic build growing up in this industry. Um, early on, found a passion for supporting teams and talent and betting on people. And uh, so all of the success we've had to date has been through organic growth since I've taken over. Of course, now we do have an eye for M&A, uh, you know, as we uh, pursue our goal of having an international presence in order to become a, a major global studio. Uh, but really, um, that's been the trajectory to this point. Let's stay on the people thing because it's it's something that I see in your materials that's highlighted a lot. So in the video of you introducing Thunderbird that's on your IR site, you highlight the culture of the company being a differentiating factor. So what what elements of that culture do you feel like are unique? Uh, well, you know, we're certainly seeing the benefit of that now in a time where retention is hard for a lot of companies. We've long focused on creating a safe space uh, where nobody feels like a number, where people can do their best work, where mistakes are allowed, because when mistakes are allowed, then innovation can happen because people will try new things. Uh, and so now we're seeing the benefits of that with a high retention rate in the strange job market that we're currently in, you know, in 2021 with everybody having worked from home or for almost two years and that connectivity to teams. Um, we've always um, had a passion for diversity and inclusivity. Uh, not only is it the right thing to do, um, lifting new and authentic voices, it's actually proven to be very good for business. And one of the silver linings of the pandemic, I would say, uh, was the push for increased diversity and inclusivity in content. And we have a dream of, you know, every person, regardless of um, ethnicity or gender, uh, being able to see themselves in content reflected back in a positive light. And the teams have done such a great job that our company won most diverse and inclusive company in British Columbia this year. We were awarded the prestigious Peabody Award for our work in, in diversity and inclusivity. And uh, I think that's a real differentiator. Companies have found us because of that focus. And the media landscape is dynamic to say the least right now. How do you think that culture has to evolve to keep pace with the way the industry is shifting? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with people, um, it's going to have to be flexible. That's the number one question we get in our interviews is, is working from home an option? Um, what additional perks do you offer? You know, we have maternity leave for everybody, paternity leave, regardless of whether you're in Los Angeles, Vancouver, Ottawa and Toronto. So really honoring, I think this last couple of years has been so hard on people, especially younger people. I do worry about that sort of early 20s workforce um, where you're networking, you're, you're getting out there. Um, you know, part of your work, at least for me, was like fun. It was a large part of your social life and um, that's really missing. And so trying to just be aware that um, status quo is not going to work anymore. We want to be leaders. How do we um, take that and say, okay, people are, have been burnt out. There's been a low level anxiety affecting everyone. I worry about people's mental health. Um, and how do we become leaders in the next, you know, what does work look like in 2022 and beyond? And so we're exploring things like the four day work week, what Finland's putting in and the six hour work day. And can we still honor our clients while honoring our crew? and running some test uh, cases against that uh, to really um, you know, put action against our words. We wanna be a company that works for the people. We're servant leaders. Uh, my job is I, I consider myself working for every single person, all 1200 people at this company. My goal is that if you're at the company, you have the best career ride of your life. That's the win. And so how do we do that while being really aware of the forces that you know, especially right now have affected everyone. And I think flexibility, work-life balance, people being able to take care of their health, put their own oxygen masks on is going to be key to retention. Uh, we're nothing without the talent. And when, when you can retain talent, um, 
that's when I believe a company can go from, you know, good to excellent. In, in that video I referenced, you also highlight that the company is just at the start of its journey. If you think five or 10 years out, you know, before we dug, dig into the business a little bit, I'd love some context for what you think that journey is going to look like over the next decade or so. Yeah, I think, you know, already we're starting to be held in the same regard as companies like DreamWorks. We're regularly winning out on, you know, work. Um, you'll start to view us more as a major global studio. We'll increasingly have more of our own IP that we monetize, be it through any type of cross-media exploitation, toys, video games, ice skating shows, you name it. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, our, that's our path is uh, we want to emulate. It's a lofty goal, but like a Disney where you've got Disney, Pixar, ILM, Marvel. We've got Thunderbird. We want to have great Pacific media, our factual division, Atomic Cartoons, our kids and family. And we're looking to add on strategic labels. We've got great organic growth, so we don't need to do any M&A to manage the bottom line. But add on labels that take us closer to becoming a major global studio where quality is a North Star. And people and culture are the key focus to getting there. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders, Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. So let's dig into the business a little bit. So, um, you know, if I go through your materials, you have kind of three different business models, intellectual property, services, and partnerships. Maybe discuss those three models. And then, you know, given a piece of content, how do you decide, is it the customer that, that, that helps dictate how that model works? Is it you, you know, which, which business model you choose? Maybe talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. Um, so I'll define the three models just quickly off the top, uh, so service is when we're hired to execute on something, we get paid throughout. So it's nice for cash flow. Uh, right now, our company is servicing major brands um, like Star Wars, Spider Man, Coco Melon, 101 Dalmatians, Trolls. Um, when you look at that roster, it speaks to the amazing uh, quality of work that the teams are doing when we're trusted as a company to handle that. Uh, when we do a good job in service, it just makes it that much easier to turn around and sell our own IP. Um, and it's also healthy for our you know, public company cash flow because with service, you get paid throughout. Moving on to IP, that's where we keep the copyright. Uh, we fully own it. It's something we've developed or brought forward to sale. Um, and we get paid upon delivery. Uh, but we get to keep that copyright in our library forevermore to monetize how we see fit, video games, toys, um, anything you can think of, bed sheets, you name it. Um, and, you know, we have a chance at creating a major global hit, which we're trying to do every single time we get up to play. Of course, there's no guarantees. Uh, but when you look at why uh, Blackstone bought Moonbug for $3 billion this year, it was because of Coco Melon, which is a hit that we're actually servicing. The third bucket is the partnership model, which we're increasingly seeing, and that's sort of a hybrid of the two. Sometimes we bring the property forward, sometimes it comes to us. 
Um, the, all of the streamers especially have to turn on so much content now. They constantly have to refresh their sites. So they come to full service companies like ours that can do absolutely everything tip to tail and they don't have to worry about it at all, the execs. So as a result of doing that extra heavy lifting, um, we're paid uh, an increased producer fee, so extra cash throughout. Plus we get a piece of the back end. So any, you know, a sizable piece of any monetization of the property, toys, video games, you name it. So we have, we don't get the copyright back to distribute, but we have ownership in um, anything that that brand does beyond just the content. And you highlight how, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world are trusting you to, you know, help, help build their content. Um, and so, it, you know, you, you're in position to be an arms dealer to a lot of large media companies. So I guess, you know, you kind of describe the, the need that you're serving for them, just a lot of content required to keep their platforms up to date, but maybe talk about the growth opportunity you see forward. How do you, how do you frame that internally um, as you watch the proliferation of streaming? Yeah, well, right now, you know, we're at 27 shows in production, uh, 12 of which are partner managed or IP. Our rate of inquiry and bids that we're putting out, be it of any of those three buckets, has tripled over the last year. Uh, we've hired an additional 440 people during the pandemic. Um, really, uh, we could take on even more. Um, it's just, you know, trying to make sure that what we do, we execute because you're only as good as kind of the last thing you deliver, you got to make sure you're doing a really good job. And in today's day and age where there's so much content, only the highest quality will stand out is our belief. So that has been a focus of ours. Uh, and widely regarded, um, you know, industry opinion is that this boom will last for at least the next five to seven years uh, because the players coming online are not startups. You know, they're <laughs> Apple and Disney and, they're here to give Netflix a run for their money because they see what a massively lucrative business it is. And I think the, the boogeyman that's kind of hanging over all independent studios is, well, what if Netflix does it all internally or if all of Disney does everything internally, they don't outsource anything. I mean, how do you think about that risk that like these companies are trying to create more and more of their own content rather than, you know, contracting in, in, in various ways to get it from other people? Yeah, I don't see it as a risk at all because they have to turn on so much content. If anything, we've seen, uh, you know, Disney uh, downsize and give us more um, because they're trying to, um, you know, manage some of the losses from their cruise ships and their theme parks. Um, they are increasingly turning to companies like ours to handle absolutely all of the content creation for them. Uh, so we're actually seeing the the opposite of that. And I know a factory analysis analogy is not perfect here. It's not like you're creating widgets and you're at 90% utilization, but no, it works. <laughs> I'm just, I am interested in like, how do we, how should investors think about, or, you know, business people think about the capacity for this company to do more and, you know, investments you have to make in the future so that you, you know, are in position to go from 27 shows to 35 and 40 and, and who knows where from there. Yeah. Well, other parts of our business will start to turn on and replace that revenue. So we don't, just have to become like a 500,000 person studio to keep growing. You know, our consumer products and distribution division that we opened up in January of 21 is really starting to take off. And that's a new vertical for our company where we handle consumer products and distribution for other companies. Um, we are looking strategically at overseas acquisitions. Where are the streamers needing to go? Where, you know, where do our part, they are measured as you well know, um, their merit is based on increasing subscribers. They're tapping out in North America. You know, most of them have publicly announced they need to get to Southeast Asia or Europe to increase their subscriber base. By us having ownership in those areas, uh, we can help turn on IP, use our LA funnel to help lift it, as well as we can increase capacity. There's some great studios out there with great talent doing amazing work uh, that we can then, you know, funnel more work through. Um, we still have room to expand in Ottawa and Los Angeles. Uh, so there, you know, there's still great growth ahead. And obviously you've highlighted, a, you know, kind of a runway for you. And, you know, this seems like just keeping the, the same strategy puts you in, in a good position, but I'm wondering if, you know, the competition in streaming or, you know, as you said, international expansion of, of, of subscriber bases changes what your customers need from you 
And if so, how do you think you need to evolve? Is that is it specifically through M and A outside? Like what what else? What else do you think you need to do to kind of skate to where the puck is going for your customers? Yeah, I think having ownership internationally, especially in countries that are similar to Canada, where the system supported, you know, with tax credits, with incentives uh, to turn on the industry, uh, where countries like Canada are saying, hey, Netflix, you want to stream here? That's awesome. But you can't just feed us North American content. You need to feed content native to this region. Um, they're tapped out. They don't have the bandwidth to find the companies and content to do it. And it's government required. Uh, we can fill a real niche there in our expansion um, internationally and turn on some great content. And this is where M&A really comes into play, because although we've had fantastic success with organic growth, we'd never be, I don't think, arrogant enough to land in another country and think we know the culture inside and out and what the nuances are around content and what resonates and what people find funny or not. And, and this is where we're looking for like-minded partners who share our core value system of talent, innovation, you know, putting people first, kindness, operating with kindness, those types of things. Once we can nail that down, we feel like the growth um, possibilities are endless. And I think the other boogeyman in the industry right now is that we're in this content spending bubble and everyone's losing money, just pouring money into trying to get subscribers. But that piece is unsustainable. Um, and then and after the land grab is over, right, you know, there's not going to be 30 billion in spend and 18 billion in spend. These companies is going to trickle down. How do you, you know, it's, it's hard to have a crystal ball, but how do you think of that about that as someone who's supplying content into that environment? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the need for content is going to stay. It's a happy escape for people um, is, you know, and I don't think the days of even post pandemic as we ease in and out of this, um, you know, the days of rushing back into movie theaters are likely forever altered. I, I hope they're not permanently, but I do think um, people are, you know, on in an ongoing manner are personalizing content. What works for them? What are they interested in? And the sort of main theme is that high quality content is here to stay. And, and that's, not, that's not going anywhere. I, you know, I always think we're not exactly saving the whales with what we're doing, but maybe a win is providing a healthy escape for people. And I don't, I don't see that easing. So there'll always be the need for content. And I don't see the market condensing to the place again, because these are major global players. There might be some wrap ups, um, but, you know, we're working with, we've been careful not to put all of our eggs in one basket. We're working with everybody. Uh, so we'll see, you know, over the coming years, how things shake out. And whenever the subject of media comes up, I think immediately the, the concept of scale becomes a topic of conversations. Like, you know, what are Disney and Netflix? They're building just massive scale and content. And so this company's revenue on a, on a trailing 12 months basis is around 125 million Canadian dollars. How do you think about internally having enough scale? What does enough scale mean to you? Yeah, I think it really comes into play with regards to the public market, Ben, because we want to honor all of our investors and shareholders. And, you know, we have a lot of excitement around a U.S. listing down the road. And that is something that we take very seriously. And that is our goal. Uh, you know, staying on the venture exchange in Canada, kind of doing this mid-court volley is not where we want to be uh, long-term, but we're also not at the right scale uh, just to weather the storm of the NASDAQ. Um, you know, we've heard from people, hey, uh, you know, just get on the NASDAQ, your stock will part, your pop, your market cap will explode. Um, but that's not necessarily true. <laughs> and so we want to, you know, we know we have one chance at a first impression. We want to just, we want to make sure to get it right. And we're investors in Lionsgate, and one of the main attractions for us is the library of content. So maybe discuss the Thunderbird library, what it looks like today, you know, the pace at which you can grow and, and add to it and as you, you know, as you maintain the IP. Maybe talk a little bit about that strategy. Yeah, well, our, our library to date has been mostly made up of kids and family and factual, which has been really beneficial for us because all of the buyer streamer strategy to glue subscribers so people don't subscribe and unsubscribe is to glue that key co-viewing audience, which is essentially families getting together to watch content together. And what do families watch? A lot of animated stuff, documentary style. So we're benefiting from being considered the stickiest 
and we own a lot of it. All of hundred percent of our IP on our factual side is owned. Um, increasingly owning IP on the kids and family side. And once we have that in our library, there's some real evergreen titles that can, you know, live on forever. And we make money just making the shows. So just delivering the shows, making the shows, we earn money. And then once we, um, you know, start to monetize it, that's when things really light up. And how, how hit driven would you say this this business is in, in, in general, right? Like, are you you know, how often are you building, trying to, trying to do something almost on spec, right? And, and saying, hey, we want to create our own IP. Hopefully this will be a big brand like Cocomel or something like that. How often are you doing that and, and taking that risk versus, you know, more of the partnership model and, um, you know, the, the services model where it's just, uh, there's like probably like less risk of, of downside? We're increasingly taking that risk and we have a more risk, um, free approach to it. A lot of companies will make a show in its entirety, spend millions of dollars and then take it out to sale. We don't do that. We'll only spend, you know, a hundred, $200,000, do a script, a Bible, a nice piece of art. And then because we have such a large body of work behind our company, we're able to go out and pitch that, um, then get the buyer on early at the table with us. So we've got about 50 projects coming up through Great Pacific Media and Atomic Cartoons ready to sale. And if they sell amazing, you know, we're really benefiting from the market tension and all of the buyers out there right now. And if they don't sell, that's okay. That's our only risk write off, you know, is a couple hundred thousand dollars, if that. Um, so we can really bring a lot out and try and get things set up quickly. And that's a lot of projects. I assume some will be successful and some other, some others 100%. won't. Just, just, you know, there's some failure in there. What, um, how do you, how do you, so, so let's say someone comes up with a project that, that fails for some reason, how do you teach that, you know, how do you turn that into a learning moment as opposed to, you know, some kind of an environment where that person doesn't feel like taking a risk again? Oh, well, I mean, I always say that you learn way more when things are pear-shaped than when things are going right. So we always do sort of mid post-mortems and say, not pointing fingers, not looking backwards, because you got to take swings. And, um, but that's when you get the learning opportunities. And that's when people develop fortitude. And, uh, you know, you got to have your team's backs, the type of person that's jumping up and down pointing fingers when things are going wrong. We don't want you to work here, you know, because things will always go wrong. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. Um, things are going to happen. And so the, the real telling and measure of success is, um, really just saying, okay, this is a learning moment. Let's not delve into the how, what, whys. Um, just from this point forward, what can we do differently? And those are some, you know, when we've had some of our best outcomes. And as a CEO, um, you know, you have a lot of responsibilities and a lot to manage. How, how involved are you in content decisions, if at all? And, you know, how, is that... Is, is that part of what, because this, because this, this is a, this is the world you came from. Is that something that you want to step back from, or do you want to lean in and, and say, this is my expertise and I can be really helpful as we think about go, no go decisions on new content? Oh, it's a great question. When we were a lot smaller, I was heavily involved and now not at all. It, there's people better than I am. Um, you know, I trust the teams. And uh, so my job is to set the vision have people's backs, make sure everyone feels empowered, knows what they're supposed to be doing, has the tools to do it. Um, that's how I see my role. Uh, but no, I empower the people that have the, um, you know, have been given the conch to select the content. And I'm also, you know, aware that uh, we all have our unconscious bias. That's part of being a diverse and inclusive company is that something that appeals to me as like, you know, a mom with three kids living in Vancouver, British Columbia is not really going to appeal to, you know, everyone. So that's why we, the importance of getting a team together where there's lots of different voices and opinions is so healthy because ultimately um, that's why, you know, all the studies show you end up doing a better job for your, especially for an audience creating content, especially creating kids content. I think, you know, we have a obligation as content providers, um, for kids to see themselves reflected back in a positive light. Um, and that's important now more than ever. So 
um, as much as I love that part of my job growing up, it's, you know, I would be, I've seen, I can look to other companies that have kept that path and it's becomes, we have to stay nimble. And, you know, when, uh, when I'm juggling so many different things, like this is all about empowering the teams and setting them up for success and then letting, stepping back and letting them do their thing. And if there's a mistake, then I take ownership for it because I'm still the CEO. It's not their fault. Um, and I'll have their backs. And that, that's my mindset. Just switching gears a little bit. We haven't talked about competition yet, um, but I think there's always the risk that, you know, there is, there's this huge content spend going on and a lot of people want to take advantage of that. So, um, you know, there are a number of smaller public animation studios out there. Um, one of our future guests on Compounders Wild Brain comes to mind. I'm interested in, in, in how do you think about competition within Atomic Cartoons and, and, and what do you think about your creative process is, 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 has been working so well? Like, is, is it, you know, is, is, it the, is it the IP? Is it the ideas? Is it, you know, something about the culture? I'm just trying to get a sense of what competition and then what, what, what do you think has been distinguishing you? Yeah, I think we, um, you know, a big differentiator for our company is we have no debt. Um, so that allows us to be really nimble. <laughs> Not a lot of companies like ours have zero debt. Um, and we, uh, we're running our own race, you know, certainly we've been focused, um, on talent and retention for years, and that is benefiting us now more than ever, as, uh, many companies start to struggle with that. That's something we've always invested in. And I've always, uh, you know, when they asked me to be CEO in 2018, I said, if you want somebody to be managing the bottom line, you should run away from me as fast as you can with your hair on fire, because that is not what I am motivated by. But I firmly believe that when you put people above the bottom line, that, you know, excellence will occur and everything else falls into place and then some. Uh, so that's, that's the mindset. Um, and I believe um, the team that we've assembled, the leadership team, has done an incredible job is, you know, spinning so many plates over the last two years, leading with kindness, leading with zero judgment, uh, really um, trying to allow people to flourish, make sure no one feels like a number. And again, that same mindset to take a chance. If there's a mistake, that's okay. I make ugh, mistakes every single day. Um, and let's just, you know, try and have each other's backs because that's what will lead to an excellent major global studio, which is our goal. So doing it a little bit differently. And we know that there's a war for talent, especially top talent, you know, in a lot of industries, including this one. You mentioned that you, I think you hired like almost 450 people over the last few years. So is that, you know, is that a sustainable pace? I mean, how hard is it to, you think it will be to continue to scale this given, you know, how difficult it is to find talent everywhere right now? Yeah, we haven't had that much trouble. You know, the, the teams do a great job. Um, certainly, again, our goal, you know, becoming a 10,000 person studio is not the right way to scale. Uh, sim even though we probably could because there's so much work out there. Um, but it, you're going to cease to do what you do well. So we have to increase our revenue and profit margins in other ways. Uh, more sustainable, more recurring uh, revenue. Um, and that's what we're, we're focused on getting out of these tight, tight labor markets. Uh, we also, you know, we want everyone to do wild brain. You mentioned, I hope wild brain does amazing because I really believe the tide rises together. You know, when Vancouver, for example, they're down the road, literally down the road, um, when they do well, we all do well. Um, and so it's, we don't look at it in sort of a, you know, carving out our space protectionist. We want what's right for the talent, be it here or be it elsewhere. When people leave, we celebrate if that's the right choice for them. Um, absolutely, we will celebrate that and you are welcome back. Um, you know, so really the tide rises together when Vancouver overall does well as an industry, that's better for everyone. And you mentioned the word recurring. So that's an interesting you know, thread I want to pull a little bit. I think traditionally this business has thought of you're an arms dealer, you sell something and then it's really lumpy. Who knows if you sell something again? Um, what, what would a recurring model look like for you? Is that multiple seasons of the same shows? Like what, what would make this in your mind be more of a recurring revenue business? Yeah, it's a great question. Both a little bit. So for example, Highway Through Hell, which is our massive, hit for, you know, filmed on the Coca-Cola and it's kind of like a 
towing company that goes out on one of the more dangerous highways and deals with difficult situations people run into in bad weather. It's that simple premise. It's going into its 12th season with more renewed. Um, and then recurring revenue in terms of, especially on the kids and family side where properties tend to be more evergreen, shows we set up like last kids on earth. Um, we covered the first three books with Netflix. There's six out, 10 planned. It's regularly a number one New York Times bestselling book. Uh, in September, Max Brailler, who's the amazing gifted writer and creator of Lost Kids, um, released his sixth book and, and it went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list ahead of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Harry Potter. Uh, we have partnered with Max to cover all of the content, the entertainment content associated with that franchise. Um, so, you know, that's where things can get interesting and take on new evolution and um, you never know what uh, the needs are going to be of the of your consumer. And you mentioned, or in one of your previous responses, the valuation that Moonbug got. Um, also, Hello Sunshine got a very nice valuation. Um, and so, when you see that, and 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 you know, we're we're Lionsgate investors, and so you know, we ask them the same questions. Like, when you see these valuations going for the studios, like what? What kind, what, what kind of conversations does it does it bring up in the boardroom and how do you how do you think you know what do you think that means for you as a company yeah I think you know um when you look at things like uh um even Peppa the pig or PJ mask and why Hasbro bought e1 for four and a half billion US dollars when you read the case studies on that it was because of those brands so the power of a major global brand when it hits is absolutely tremendous and every time we get up to the plate, we're trying to make that happen. Uh, you know, Frank Juster, who started Lionsgate, is on our board uh, with Marnie Weishoffer. She was his CFO uh, in Toronto. So Marnie's our chair, Frank's our lead director. They started Lionsgate here in Canada and took it to Los Angeles to become the first major global studio in decades. And I'm always asking them because, you know, Hunger Games, as you know, as an investor, was one of their big original breakouts and the stock almost overnight went from $9 to kind of a $40 stock. And um, Frank's like, just stay the course, keep doing your quality, diverse uh, content. Uh, you guys are gonna keep winning the battles and it's a law of averages. It, it's, it's bound to happen, just keep getting up to plate. So that's the encouragement we get from the gentleman who actually started Lionsgate. And, and he's also on the board and, and your largest individual shareholder. I, I think I should mention that. Um, yeah. What so that I mean that seems like a great mentor relationship, um, you know, someone to, to bounce ideas off of. What else have you learned from Frank over over your experience that you think could be helpful as you're as you're building Thunderbird? Well, he's an incredible mentor. I can't believe I get to circle in his orbit. You know, he's a true class act. He's a philanthropist. He gives back. Um, his value system on such a larger scale. You know, he doesn't believe in billionaires. He thinks people should give away more than they make. And, um, you know, he's we're one of the only, I think we are the only public board he remains on because he also loves content. And it's played such a role in his life, you know, building gold companies, whatever it is, the escape of content and the power of content. And um, so, you know, from him, it's just don't do too much. Do what you do. Do it well. Don't do M&A for the sake of doing m &A. It never works. Um, and uh, just stay true to your value system. Keep getting up to plate and you'll you'll get that grand slam. It's, it's bound to happen. And since you mentioned M&A and capital allocation, I'd love to go there. Uh, so this company generates a fair amount of free cash flow. There's not a lot of CapEx in the business. Maybe talk a little bit about your priorities for that cash and then, you know, how, what does an inorganic, you know, a, like a proper inorganic M&A strategy look like in, 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 from your perception? Yeah. So we want to have, you know, we're more of an international footprint. Where do all of our buyers need to go? Where are people's eyeballs going? And um, so for us, that's, you know, getting overseas looking at countries that have said, hey, you want to stream here? A certain percentage of what you stream here needs to be content native to this environment, you know, this country. Um, their government support similarly to Canada with tax credits, industry incentives, whatnot. And again, by having ownership, there's some amazing studios doing amazing work. 
uh, we're going to be able to add labels just the same way Disney has different labels to our studio, um, go where people's eyeballs are going and create IP that we can then run through our burgeoning consumer products and distribution division that we own. Uh, so that, you know, and then set up more video games, set up more toy lines, um, set up more, you know, all of that um, is on top. And one thing that was attractive and surprised me to this business generates pretty, pretty healthy EBITDA margins. And so I guess I'm a little more familiar with the larger studios that focus more on the theatrical business, which um, has pretty slim margins in general, given the marketing and the kind of like hit driven business that is. Maybe talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you've been able to, to get to such a high margin level and, and the sustainability of it, um, given the, you know, given what's in your hopper in terms of investments and, and potential revenue sources. Yeah, we've been continually optimizing what we do, um, you know, trying to improve our gross margins. It changes depending on the product mix based on service and IP and whatnot. Um, but we, we take conservative swings again. We're not um, you know, getting into really high-end live action right off the bat. We can look at other companies who've done that. And when you're at our size, it's a pretty big swing if it works great, but if not, it's catastrophic for your company. So really trying to be measured. We announced Reginald Vampire on our last um, quarterly call. Um, and that's, a, you know, an exciting strategic move where we're getting out of just Canadian scripted uh, into U.S. facing scripted. We fully own that property. It's diverse. It's inclusive. There's an upcoming star, um, Jacob Battleon from uh, Spider-Man. And we have U.S. buyers, which I can't say which ones yet. But, you know, so that's a strategic move, you know, kind of baby steps along. We're not trying to get greedy and explode. We want to honor our shareholders. We know we need to grow. We know we need to increase our market cap quite significantly to make sure we can get that U.S. listing and weather the storm <laughs> of a U.S. listing. And uh, but that's our goal. That's that's where we're heading. And um, you mentioned this in one of your previous responses, but um, for people who aren't familiar with um, Canadian content companies, you are entitled to some substantial tax credits. Um, in a way that you just don't see um, companies in the U.S. benefit from. So maybe just talk a little bit about those, how those work and, and, and what were the benefits to being in Canada and then how you know, they impact your free cash flow or, or how they have impacted your free cash flow over time. Yeah, I think a key note about the tax credits here in Canada is they've been a well, around for well over 30 years. Um, so they're not going anywhere. You know, it's a huge job stimulus. For example, Vancouver is now officially the number one hub for animation and visual effects in the world. And by having tax credits where essentially 30 to 50% of a resident's salary is covered by the government, we're able to you know, present really compelling budgets where you can put more on screen. Um, and it's almost impossible to say no to us when you know you're getting that quality at that lower price point. Um, and we sit on committees, I'm on several Canadian Meeting Producers Association uh, to just make sure that we're working closely with the government, you know, to make sure that it, it they're all hanging together. It's, the spend isn't too big, all, all of that. And this company, if I just go through your financial statements, um, you know, there was a big drop in revenue between fiscal 18 and fiscal 19. Um, maybe, we, you know, for someone who's just looking at this company, that might be like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Maybe talk a little bit about that period of time and, and what led to that. And also, I think the more important side of that is, you know, what's changed about the environment or the model that you're pursuing um, that would make something like that less likely um, than it was maybe three years ago? Yeah. And that was when Thunderbird was more back office services when it was more of a hangover from how the originally company originally started, there was a very small team doing M&A, acquiring properties. They weren't actually making a lot of content. And so we had a show in our mix, Man in the High Castle, that we weren't actually producing. We were just handling the flow of it, which really gave us a deceiving revenue pop, very little EBITDA, and was a huge distraction for our accounting team uh, with real no big upside other than the revenue. So when we dropped that show, just because it didn't make sense creatively in the mix, um, we had a decrease to our revenue. But now 
um, it's a much different light. You know, we're actually executing on a lot of the work that we're doing. And uh, so it's a much different complexion of the company than it was back in 2017. And I mean, that's a pretty big shift in terms of what this company was and what it is now. I mean, you've talked about it a little bit. You've talked about the studio in LA. You've talked about hiring a lot of people. But was there, um, are, were there other elements or growing pains? I mean, that just seems like a big trans transformation in a short period of time. What do you attribute the ability to do that to? Uh, I think you know the hard work of the teams, the mission uh, to become a major global studio, the pride and ownership of work. Um, all of that. And it's just a different, um, you know, who the founders started to promote as their sort of successors um, that we all grew up in production. <laughs> so we had a different slant, a different bent, a different skill set. And that's, I think, a lot of what we're seeing today. Interesting, interesting. And um, you've talked a little bit about the um, consumer products opportunity. Uh, but I think I've seen companies, you know, highlight that and talk about it. And, you know, everyone wants to be able to monetize their IP, but it's not just, it's not so easy. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the strategy in that front and maybe provide an example of, of how it's worked as you've tried to monetize IP. Yeah, I think, you know, Beatbugs is a great property I can talk about. That was a show that we owned the IP, reintroducing the library of the Beatles to kids. Um, and again, we take a conservative approach. We make money making the shows. Uh, you always do a sets of ultimates in the creative industry, low, mid, high level ultimates. Um, we never put in high level ultimates. We never assume we're going to have a hit. We always just put in what, you know, um, all our research says the show should do, or maybe even slightly less. And that way we can always under promise and over deliver. Um, and we're always trying to, you know, shows that we don't think have big consumer products, um, you know, toys, video games on them, then we're happy to go to a buyout model. Sure, we'll just sell this show for a lot of cash up front. We don't need to hold on to the IP because there's less lift. But when we see a lot of possible upside and lift, that's when we hold on because that's when things can change. And, you know, I always think of George Lucas, um, who did Star Wars. We do ton of work with Lucasfilm right now and have been lucky to visit the ranch and all of those things and when he did his first Star Wars um, he said listen to the studio execs you don't need to pay me a salary I'll just hold on to the merchandise and they were like oh pff, awesome this guy's crazy he's not even gonna take a salary it's amazing for our budget well I mean guess who had the last laugh over and over and over again um, and so that's where things can really get transformational uh, and so again, it's just, you know, we're always hoping to under promise over deliver. We don't assume we're going to have a hit. You just, you never really know. I mean, we try and do everything to line it up, but when you look at SpongeBob, nobody really found it for three seasons and then suddenly boom or Seinfeld. The only reason it kept airing was because a NBC network exec loved it, kept, you know, renewing it just because they liked the show and then suddenly it caught fire. So you're never really sure. And to me, that brings up an interesting process question. Uh, so just like us, we're, we're investing in stocks and you never really know what's going to work. You're just making calculated bets. What do you, what is your, I mean, do you have a process for evaluating, you know, what's going to be a hit, you know, like some whatever historical examples of, of, of how, of what's been a hit. And do you, what do you think your hit rate is for being able to predict what, what people will really like and what will do well versus, you know, not necessarily do as well. Yeah. We certainly look at, uh, you know, focus testing. Sometimes we'll look at companies. We, part of our strategy to sell the show early and then embark upon making it is because all of our buyers have incredible data analytics. They have, you know, as much as something like somebody like a Netflix is a creative company, they're also a technology company. They know exactly who's watching what, when, when they turn it off, um, when they stop watching what, you know, there's, uh, we were lucky enough a couple of years ago to have dinner with the data analytics team. And I'd say it was one of the more fascinating dinners I've ever been a part of in Miami at kids screen um, and absolutely picked their brains because, um, you know, they're all these smart young people from Harvard that are really do dictate a lot of what the content is based on understanding 
how people are consuming it, what their preferences are, what's working, what's not. Um, so, you know, we like to partner up early and get access to all of that great intel. And we've talked a lot about um, the animation side, because I think that's, you know, it's the side I'm more familiar with. But, you know, great Pacific media creates a lot of what you call factual content. Um, and, and you mentioned the Highway to Hell um, um, uh, franchise. Maybe discuss a little bit about what the strategy is there and talk to me about why your partners are interested in procuring that kind of content from you. Yeah, well, it's hugely popular. And I think I mentioned earlier, it's the stickiest, you know, people are more likely to gather and watch documentary style programming. It's also hugely profitable and uh, inspiring. You know, our team is built up of journalists uh, with an eye for truth telling. We're not doing sort of reality show like the Kardashians or anything where uh, the incredibly talented people that have come from National Geographic or History Channel or news um, outlets. And uh, with their eye for truth telling, um, we're look, you know, following shows, watching. Um, we put small crews out and watch stories unfold. And then everything happens back in the edit where we try and find the characters and whatnot. And um, it's, a, it's a great model as compared to animation, which, you know, I mean, I love animation. My heart's there as well. Um, but you can turn the uh, factual shows around much quicker um, at a much lower cost. You know, we own all of the equipment. We own absolutely everything. So we're not renting any of that. Uh, we've got people on staff, a small development team. Their whole job is coming up with the next idea, the next pitch. And uh, really high, you know, cash flow that comes out of, of that. And to be honest, Atomic couldn't have grown as it has without, uh, you know, the, the backing of Great Pacific early on. And if you think about where you'd be likely to deploy capital, um, whether it's through internal investments or M&A, which side should we, would we expect it to be on? More on the Atomic side, great, uh, on, the, on the Great Pacific side, or you're open to either? Open to either. You know, we're really trying to grow both um, divisions equally. And, you know, push for groundbreaking uh, strategic growth across the board. Uh, they're extremely complementary. Is it fair to assume that animation travels out, outside of English language borders better than, than the Great Pacific content? Or not is that not necessarily true? No, it's a great observation, Ben. Um, part of the a beauty of animation is it's more evergreen. You know, you don't get that like 80s tie, quote unquote, <laughs> that people will refer to it as. It's much easier to date something that's live action. So it's easier to sell around the world for much longer. And it's easier to dub in different languages because, yeah. you know, you're dealing with rabbits or horses or it's 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 just that much easier to translate. We've talked a lot about the media landscape and how it's changed and evolved, especially since you originally got to Atomic Cartoons. I'm always interested in, you know, previously held beliefs that you've had to let go of or re rethink over time. Is there anything that's happened over the last decade or so that, you know, you didn't foresee and, and, and you know, you, you had a vision of the world, which was X and it turned out to be Y. Anything that comes to mind when I, when I ask that question? I just think the general awareness of unconscious bias has become more clear to me. And that we all have our unconscious bias, you know, and that um, really believing that it's healthier for the company to not just surround people that look and sound like you, um, it, especially in content when you're trying to reach so many different people and lift new and authentic storytellers. You know, we haven't always gotten it right, um, but it's something I've learned a lot about and, you know, really want to do better as a leader and working for all the people. And that, that's been eye-opening for me. And uh, I think a silver lining of the pandemic, not to be a Pollyanna about the pandemic, but some of the movements like the Black Lives Matter movement and um, increased racial awareness uh, really has been incredibly eye-opening in, um, in terms of that. And, you know, I started out in my career producing Barbie movies and that was really um, impactful to me because Mattel used to send me, I was the producer, a toy line and say, okay, go ahead and make toys with the, this toy line, make a script, write, hire everyone and deliver us a movie. And I um, always hated their, you know, they would weigh in 
on a couple key points. And one of them was that at the end, you know, Barbie, the princess had to get married. And I would always say, why does she have to get married? This is such a stupid, like that can't be the prize, right? Um, for the young female, uh, I don't get it. And so they invited me down um, to one of their focus testing where they would have hundreds of three to seven year olds come in a room and you would be behind sort of screen doors and they would have uh, all of their toy lines laid out. And um, everybody didn't matter if they were, uh, what ethnicity they were from, Latina, black, would race to the blonde wedding dress Barbie. And that was what was idolized. That was what was in the water as what you wanted to have or be. And I just thought, oh my God, this absolutely sucks. This is an absolute heartbreak that these beautiful children think that's what there is to aspire for. And, um, you know, I know it's a huge movement, but keeping that in my back of my pocket and trying to um, allow content to flourish that of course I'm not creating amazingly talented people are, um, is a real driver. And without naming names, do you feel like other studios and other, you know, people who are creating content, you know, that bias is reflected in their work. And as a result, there's like an opportunity for you to, to look differently at that different content producers or opportunities to, to invest in content. I think we're, we would like to think that we're more open to diverse and authentic content. And some companies, you know, recently have found us because of our reputation in that area. Um, I would, uh, we don't always get it right. That's for sure. These are years in the making. And I think it's a ground, you know, a real grassroots movement to try and create and evoke change. Um, but one that will get behind wherever we can um, and try and do it as successfully as we can. But, you know, take ownership of our mistakes, as we've talked about, learn from them and try and pivot and just do it, you know, keep digging in, don't give up. And, and sticking on the mistakes angle, one thing that investors really have never really have any insight into is the path not taken. So I'm interested if there are any paths that, you know, over the last, maybe even since you, you know, we, you know, were came to the company, any paths not taken that might've been very lucrative or, you know, might've changed the, the, the eventual trajectory of the company that weren't actually taken. Anything come to mind? Yeah. I think just staying with our basic value system, we've walked away uh, for some pretty lucrative opportunities to do cut scenes and video games, uh, you know, that, um, but they're maybe first shooter games. And um, that's just something that as a company, we couldn't get behind promoting that content for kids. And so, yeah, that probably would have been the right thing to do if we were just worried about our bottom line, but it would have sent the wrong, you know, actions speak louder than words. And it would have derailed everything that we were putting out into the marketplace and to our talent had we taken on work like that. Um, and I don't lose sleep about that, not for one second. Um, because even if you boil down the value of our work and we're just trying to help parents, you know, boil potatoes quietly um, <laughs> so that they could put on something healthy and for their kids, uh, we just wouldn't want to be part of, um, that was against our value system. Um, some of those really violent uh, games. So we didn't, we just didn't take them on, even though financially it would have been lucrative. And what you're getting to is the, the Thunderbird brand. And I'm interested, is there a Thunderbird brand or are there really a Great Pacific brand and Atomic Cartoons brand that may not necessarily be overlapping? Um, you know, I could just see animation and kind of like, not reality, but kind of factual shows, not necessarily having a lot of synergy in that. You know what I mean? What is there an overarching brand of, of sorts? Yeah, you raise a really good question. That's something I've been continually digging into since I've become CEO, you know. Mostly it's, we're back office services. We've got the drivers, Atomic, Great Pacific. What I would will say is that the continuing thread is the shared value system of um, how we operate. Uh, we want to, you know, have everyone's backs, make sure everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing, have the tools to do it. And Thunderbirds, um, you know, when we increasingly dial in that ability as we do acquisitions, that's something we can really bring to the table for people is strong finance, is strong HR, IT, legal, uh, you know, and allow those divisions um, that we strategically acquire to flourish. And one of my favorite topics of conversation is um, 
investments that uh, you know kind of cause short-term pain for long-term gain. And this company has a large degree of insider ownership, and and that usually, to me, you know, suggests that the management team and the board are thinking and acting like owners. So where where have you been investing for the long run um, to the detriment of sh- short-term margins? Would you say? Um, my goodness, I think uh, you know, just we're not taking lower quality a ton of lower quality work, which we could. Um, you know, that won't do us well in the long run. Uh, the need for content is so high. If we were to kind of push, burn our teams out, take a ton of stuff, sure, short-term gain, long-term pain, because then all of the artists we've onboarded that are key to our success are like, what, this is a factory now. We don't want to be part of a factory. And talent is like, talent begets talent. It's like moths to a flame. So if you keep your key talent and it's like any great sports team, you need your high-end talent, your mid-level and your junior, they're all crucial. It's the same as a great hockey team coming together. Um, and that mix doesn't work if we start just to serve the bottom line and, and try and bring in a ton of work to make a quarter or whatnot. And you've talked a lot about the long-term journey this company's on. If I, if I floated the idea out there that this company was being built to sell. Is that a, is that something you recoil at? Is that something that you'd say, you know, anything's possible or a public company? Like how, how do you think about trying to, you know, trying to scale this business with, you know, with a focus on, you know, also maximizing value for shareholders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our goal is to become a major global studio where, uh, we always say, okay, if we're climbing Everest and this is fun, we're in this together, you know, what are we at? Like base camp, maybe a little further ahead. Um, but uh, we're open to any and all conversations. You know, we're working for the people and that includes our shareholders. And if there's a way to shorten the distance between where we're now to becoming a major global studio, absolutely. Let's have that conversation. I think we're a desirable target. We're, you know, young, the, the workforce, we're nimble, we're growing, we've got great uh, balance sheet. It's very clean. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We're open to any of those conversations. And I, you know, I feel like you are dealing with a lot of things, whether that's employee retention, whether it's, you know, ramping up the content creation, plus looking at MA. What do you think are three things this company absolutely has to get right um, over the next few years for the stock to be a good investment for um, both investors and employees. Yeah, I think we have to get our push for IP right. I think we have to keep quality as our North Star. And I truly believe that a differentiator is the diversity and inclusivity that we've been focusing on. It's uh, proving to be extremely good for business um, and retention. And again, we're nothing without the people working for us. So we need to increase our IP. We absolutely need to get that right and keep getting up to plate. As Frank said, it's a law of averages. Uh, keep hitting and we're going to get that grand slam and, um, you know, just not get greedy and explode. It's easy to get distracted and try and do too much in this ecosystem. So really trying to meter out what we do and, and, you know, continue to do what we're doing well. And you mentioned one of the, the, the things that you're focused on is retention. And that makes sense given the, 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 the kind of war for talent. Is there, is there anything you've learned about compensating people and and or just motivating people over your tenure that you think has been helpful as it relates to i mean you have a culture that seems to ha- have higher retention but anything more um you know extrinsic versus intrinsic that you that you've learned over your tenure as, as ceo or, or just at the company yeah compensation matters but it's actually not the most important it's people don't leave their compensation they leave their managers their teams Uh, So really making sure that's dialed in and that there's a safe space is what retains people um, time and time again. And a lot of the time, it's the little things that go the furthest, you know, Uh, just um, the small touches and making sure people feel taken care of and safe and heard. Listening is way more important than talking. Um, Of course, you have to have competitive compensation. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that people are not going to work for a competitive comp, but in order to retain people, you have to be that company that listens and takes action and doesn't dismiss. doesn't matter how small the request is 
or, you know, I always ask people, what can we be doing to better support you? And then really listening to that answer and, and trying to pivot accordingly. It's amazing how different that style of management is compared to, you know, a, a lot of, well, especially investment management firms, but also I think a lot of public companies. Um, yeah, it's definitely a different approach. A lot of people have said to me, Jen, it would be so much easier if you just said on time, on budget. But I don't, I don't want to be part of an ecosystem like that. That's, yeah. that's not what drives me. And, um, you know, we've been dancing around the topic of, of what maybe people don't quite appreciate about this company um, throughout this conversation, but maybe let's put a final point on it. What do you, what do you think you know, about the business model, about the growth opportunity, about the margins of the cash flow, what do you think is the most underappreciated or misunderstood aspect of this company? I think just the incredible organic growth that we've had. And even if you look at the last two years, every single buyer has, and this is not me, um, this is the teams, has called out that we were one of the few, if not the only company um, that didn't miss a delivery. Um, we, we didn't create any cost overages for our partners. We managed to get off site successfully, all 1000 plus people. Uh, you know, when that started to unfold, my only mandate was that no one ever was going to open up their online banking and worry about where a paycheck was coming from. I've never felt more driven in my life than to make sure that happened. And the teams did an incredible job. Um, and it won us a lot of, um, and again, not me, it's hardworking teams. Uh, forever trust um, and a sort of our level of integrity uh, went up in the eyes and trust of all of our buyers. And so I think being able to execute like that on major brands, you know, we're handling some of the world's biggest brands right now for people in service and then also setting up our own shows. I really think, you know, we're on our way to kind of repeating the ways of Lionsgate. Um, we've got the great guidance on the board with Marnie and Frank and there's no reason that we can't be the next major global studio. Well, um, clearly uh, the stock market has begun to appreciate a lot of that. Um, and I think your investors and potential investors will really appreciate all these perspectives. Um, and we've gotten through all the questions, which is incredible. So, but I want to thank you for your time and wish you an amazing amount of luck going forward with everything. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you, Ben, and your thoughtful questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-street.com capital.com with their comments or suggestions. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.